welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Hello again. The cases are a bit long and heady this week, but don't worry, only five. And before we begin in full, this term's Supreme Court decisions are starting to trickle out. On March 7th, the Supreme Court published Wooden v. U.S., a case arising in the Armed Career Criminal Act context and that, on first blush, doesn't appear very applicable to immigration. However, the decision is all about when a string of criminal offenses can be considered part of the same occasion for ACCA purposes. It's favorable to the defendant, and it's got me thinking that the case might have some language and analysis favorable for combating an INA Section 237A2AII charge, the removal provision for two or more CIMTs not arising out of a single scheme of criminal conduct. Going to pin the case here and in the podcast publicly available outline for the future. Now, on to the case summaries. Starting off, we have Oluwanja v. Garland, published by the Seventh Circuit on March 9th, 2022. This is a case that got me going right out the gate. Mr. Oluwanja is from Nigeria and entered the U.S. as a lawful permanent resident in 2011. But in 2017, he was convicted of some crimes that may have made him removable. He represented himself before the immigration judge and, quote, at the final hearing, end quote, the IJ deemed Mr. Oluwanja removable. The IJ then asked him about relief, and Mr. Oluwanja appeared to indicate a desire to file for asylum. But at least by the time of his final hearing to establish removability, an I-589 application had not yet been filed. Quote, a few weeks after the hearing, Mr. Oluwanja was ordered removed from the United States. End quote. Mr. Oluwanja timely filed a notice of appeal, and a few months later, he obtained an attorney. His attorney, quote, promptly requested, end quote, a copy of Mr. Oluwanja's immigration file from EOIR and asked the BIA to delay issuing a briefing schedule. 
That is to say, Ms. Olawancha's attorney almost surely filed a Freedom of Information Act request. The only real option for discovery in immigration proceedings. The BIA eventually set a briefing schedule anyway, which as we know, at most includes only the IJ's decision and the transcript of whatever happened in the court below. Anyway, as the briefing deadline approached, EOIR had still not provided responsive documents to the FOIA request, so Mr. Lawanja's attorney requested an extension of the briefing deadline. The BIA granted a 21-day extension. Mr. Olawancha's attorney received the FOIA response eight days before the brief was due, and so requested a second brief 21-day extension. The BIA denied the request. Quote, instead, it informed counsel that he could submit a brief after the due date along with a motion for its consideration. End quote. So that's what Mr. Olawancha's attorney did, 12 days after the briefing deadline. The merits brief argued that Mr. Lawanja's convictions did not in fact make him removable, and that the IJ had denied his due process rights by, for example, failing to give him an opportunity to apply for asylum. The accompanying motion explained everything that I just said about the late brief and requested that it be accepted untimely. The BIA rejected the entire brief one month later, explaining briefly why in a footnote. The BIA misstated in that footnote that the brief was 33 days untimely when, in fact, it was 12 days untimely. Briefless, the BIA then affirmed removal. The Seventh Circuit did not agree with this strategy. And actually, in fact, Oil agreed at the petition for review stage that the Seventh Circuit should, quote, return this case to the BIA for further proceedings, end quote. But Mr. Olawanja wanted more. He wanted the Seventh Circuit to order that the BIA consider his surely well-written brief. And the Seventh Circuit did just that. The Seventh Circuit reviews BIA decisions to deny a motion to accept or file a late-filed brief for abuse of discretion. A very deferential standard. And yet, one that the Seventh Circuit deemed met here. It was met here because the Seventh Circuit didn't agree with either of the BIA's rationales for refusing to accept the late-filed brief. First, quote, the mere fact that the BIA denied a second extension request cannot justify the rejecting of a late brief, end quote. Remember that one. Because even if the BIA can't grant a second briefing extension before the fact, and more on that in a bit, it still may accept a brief filed untimely later. Nice distinction. And the Seventh Circuit deemed the BIA's succinct and contrary rationale, quote, nonsensical, end quote. Second, and as I mentioned, the BIA was just wrong in stating that the brief was 33 days untimely, so that can't be sustained. The Seventh Circuit wasn't willing to give the BIA another chance to decide whether or not to accept the brief, because the facts just weren't in dispute. You know what? I'm just going to read this quote in full. Quote, the government failed to provide Mr. Olawanja's counsel with a copy of his immigration file until almost two weeks after the initial deadline set by the BIA to file an administrative brief, a brief that could not have been filed without review of the file. Yet less than three weeks after it finally provided a copy of the file, counsel drafted a brief and filed it with the BIA, a mere 12 days past the revised due date. That is, the delay resulted principally if not entirely, from the tardiness with which the government fulfilled its obligation to provide Mr. Lawanja's counsel critical information. And counsel in turn acted expeditiously when that information was received. On these facts, 
any reasonable exercise of discretion required acceptance of Mr. Lawanja's brief. End quote. Lots of good in there. Sorry for the long quote. So, back to the BIA with the benefit of a brief. Congratulations, Scott D. Pollock and Christina Murdoch, for the win. And thanks for reaching out. You guys would know better than I, but there can't be that many decisions out there on this issue. So thank you for this. And I got more. First, I'd note, as the Seventh Circuit did, that under the new 2020 regulations, the BIA cannot, under any circumstances it seems, grant a second briefing extension. What a rule. I'm fairly confident the regs remained enjoined, although the Seventh Circuit didn't say so. Next, as circuit practitioners will know, when oil isn't quite sure about defending the BIA's decision, it will sometimes request a general remand to essentially allow the BIA a do-over. That's what oil was asking for here, and that's what the Seventh Circuit disallowed. Because indeed, and here's some nice case law for you circuit warriors, quote, when the government requests a general remand and that request is opposed by the petitioner, we will grant the request only when there is a persuasive reason to do so, end quote. That's a standard. Fight them if you got them. Finally, as many of you know, EOIR's FOIAs can take a long time, as occurred here, and the delay can prejudice non-citizens. Well, EOIR is taking action. I give credit where credit is due. First, you can now file EOIR FOIAs online through their portal, and it appears both quicker and better. I've even received a few messages from EOIR staff in the portal. Gasp. And second, just this week, EOIR announced that it now has email addresses for every court and the BIA, whereby counsel can request copies of the entire record of proceedings in a case all it would appear, electronically, and without need of a FOIA. EOIR even apparently updated the practice manual to reflect this, so you know they're serious. Hopefully makes decisions like this no longer necessary. And that is a Luanja B. Garland. Next is matter of MMA, published by the BIA. This case is about frivolous asylum filings. And as the case title indicates, it was quite the fight, with appellate I.J. Greer in dissent. Mr. MMA was admitted to the U.S. in some sort of non-immigrant status in 2007 and affirmatively filed for asylum in 2010 before USCIS. In his application, he claimed that his father was a founder and leader of the, quote, Southern Movement in Yemen, which called for the secession of South Yemen, end quote. He also stated that he and his brother had been members of the group since 2003, that his father was in prison as a result, and that arrest warrants were issued for him and his brother. He included a signed corroborating declaration. USCIS did not grant the application and so referred it all to immigration court. In removal proceedings, Mr. MMA apparently married a U.S. citizen and applied to adjust to LPR status. DHS brought up that his asylum claim might indicate, however, that he has materially supported terrorism, which would make him inadmissible and give him a lot of problems. So Mr. MMA withdrew the application. But of course, that doesn't resolve the issue, and realizing that he might be in deep, he, quote, claimed that he mischaracterized certain information regarding his involvement with the Southern Movement in Yemen and wished to retract the information, end quote. Admitting that he had made a misrepresentation, 
he sought to waive that inadmissibility with an I-601 waiver. And really, it appears that he pretty much disavowed his entire asylum story. Problem is that the misrepresentations, even if waivable with an I-601 waiver, were made in an asylum application. And so DHS urged the IJ to find that Mr. MMA filed a frivolous asylum application, which would therefore bar him from most, if not all, benefits under the INA. The IJ indeed found that Mr. MMA made material misrepresentations, thereby requiring a fraud waiver. And the IJ then granted that waiver and granted Mr. MMA's application to adjust LPR status through his U.S. citizen spouse. The IJ declined to find that he had made a frivolous asylum application, holding that, as that application had been withdrawn and a new application for relief granted, quote, she was not required to find that the respondent's asylum application was frivolous, end quote. DHS appealed. And here, the BIA majority overturned the IJ. Now true, an immigration judge, quote, is not required to evaluate whether an application is frivolous if DHS does not raise the issue. End quote. Good to point out when requesting that DHS exercise its prosecutorial discretion in a given case, fellow attorneys. However, the BIA held here that the statute and regulations, viewed as a whole, require that where DHS does bring up the issue, an IJ must make, quote, sufficient factual findings on whether the requirements for a frivolous determination have been met, end quote. The IJ doesn't have to make a frivolous finding, but they do have to explain their factual reasoning one way or the other. Then, addressing the facts of the case, the BIA stated that, quote, this is not a case in which the respondent simply lacked credibility based on inconsistent testimony, end quote. A situation, by the way, where a frivolous finding would be inappropriate. Rather, the BIA reviewed the facts itself and found that almost surely they met the regulatory and matter of YL's definition of a frivolous asylum finding. But the BIA remanded for an actual determination by the IJ. Appellate IJ Greer dissented and would hold that IJs, quote, retain discretion over whether to initiate a frivolousness inquiry under matter of YL, end quote. Indeed, possibly speaking to her boss, Attorney General Garland, appellate I.J. Greer believes that, quote, the majority has created an unwarranted expansion of the application of the INA's frivolousness provision, which is contrary to statute, regulations, and case law, end quote. I don't know. Seems like a lot of fighting for something that one retired I.J. told me this week that he only experienced like three times in his 30-year career. And now, my favorite part of the podcast, giving you good quotes from non-citizen adverse BIA precedent. Good quote to remember in your BIA repeals, quote, Immigration judges must make sufficient findings of fact and conclusions of law on issues raised before them to ensure the BIA can conduct effective appellate review, end quote. And even better quote, quote, this includes, as in all discretionary analyses, weighing all the positive equities against the negative factors in a particular case, end quote. Indeed, here, quote, although the immigration judge stated that there were significant equities in this case, she did not meaningfully analyze all of the negative factors, end quote. Methinks I'm familiar with the reverse situation having happened once or twice. A good quote for challenging it. Finally note, the 2012 Second Circuit decision Majun Zhang v. Holder is contrary to this one. 
And although the Second Circuit apparently said in that decision that it would defer to the BIA if the BIA ever published a contrary decision, as it now has, the BIA didn't actually invoke the Supreme Court's Brand X decision in this holding. So actually, it may very well still be the case that Mai Junjiang still governs in the Second Circuit. Second Circuit dicta notwithstanding. Not overly eager to test it on petition for review, but there it is. And that is a matter of MMA. Next up, the categorical approach. Valdez Amador v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on March 9th, 2022. This case has been around a long time, since 2013 at the Ninth Circuit alone, based on the case number. It's about aggravated felonies. Judge Graber partially concurred and dissented. Mr. Valdez is from Mexico and became a lawful permanent resident in the U.S. at age 9 in 1989. He should have naturalized, but he didn't. He obtained some convictions in 2005, including inflicting corporal injury on a spouse or cohabitant in violation of Cal Penal Code Section 273.5a, and of driving under the influence. Then in 2010, he was convicted of felony rape of an unconscious person in violation of Cal Penal Code Section 261a4. He was sentenced to one year in prison, five years of probation, and ordered to register as a sex offender. DHS placed him in removal proceedings, alleging that he should lose his green card and be deported because the crime is an aggravated felony. Then DHS brought other charges as well, based on the corporal injury conviction. And really, the procedural history of this very old case is quite complex, so I'm not going to go too deep. To summarize, the matter bounced back and forth from the BIA to the IJ, and indeed, it appears that the IJ got so frustrated with one of the BIA's remands that, quote, the IJ certified the record back to the BIA for reconsideration, arguing the decision was inconsistent with binding Ninth Circuit precedential authority, end quote. The BIA declined to reconsider and remanded to a different IJ. Fun stuff. After a bunch of back and forth and years of intervening Supreme Court case law, the issues are now three. I'll take them in turn. First, is Mr. Valdez removable under INA Section 237A2EI because his conviction is a crime of domestic violence? Well, the Ninth Circuit has previously held that inflicting corporal injury on a spouse or cohabitant in violation of Cal Penal Code Section 273.5A is not categorically a crime involving moral turpitude, because it doesn't necessarily require that the defendant have a, quote, special domestic relationship, end quote, with the victim. That's the 2009 decision Morales-Garcia v. Holder. But that's not the specific issue here, and the court has also previously decided that Morales-Garcia doesn't govern the crime of domestic violence issue. Rather, in Carrillo v. Holder from 2015, the court held that this very conviction is, quote, categorically a crime of domestic violence, end quote. So, that's devastating for Mr. Valdez's first argument. Plus, Mr. Valdez's attorney, at least in removal proceedings, actually conceded that he was removable for this reason, for this crime. And, the Ninth Circuit rejected Mr. Valdez's argument that the records of the conviction submitted by DHS were insufficient to establish his conviction for this crime. Okay, so Mr. Valdez is removable. But is he nevertheless statutorily eligible for LPR cancellation under INA Section 240AA? Well, he is if he hasn't been convicted of an aggravated felony. 
And that gets us to the second issue. Is felony rape of an unconscious person in violation of Cal Penal Code Section 261A4 an aggravated felony? Here, an ag fell as defined at INA Section 101A43A, murder, rape, or sexual abuse of a minor. Now, in one of its multiple decisions in this very case, the BIA already held that the crime is not categorically an aggravated felony. And that's because, quote, the offense encompasses some conduct that is commonly understood as rape, as well as some conduct that is not, end quote. The BIA then determined that the statute was divisible, looked at the plea hearing transcript, and determined that Mr. Valdez did not plea to subsection D, which was the only subsection that did not always involve the federal definition of rape. So said the BIA. But this case has been around a long time, and in 2015, the Supreme Court published the Mathis decision, which clarified just when exactly a crime is divisible. Crimes with multiple elements are divisible. Crimes with multiple means of committing a single offense are not. And now, following Mathis, the Ninth Circuit held that, quote, the subsections of Section 261A4 are means because the jury need not specify under which circumstances a victim must be rendered unconscious of the nature of the act, end quote. Legally aside, or maybe not, that makes the statute indivisible. And it means that unlike the BIA held many years ago, the modified categorical approach has no role to play, and the court can't look to see what exactly Mr. Valdez did. See, the statute always requires that the victim be unconscious. But California defines that term broadly. Subsection D permits a conviction where the person is unconscious, meaning that he or she was, quote, not aware, knowing, perceiving, or cognizant of the essential characteristics of the act due to the perpetrator's fraudulent representation that the sexual penetration served a professional purpose when it served no professional purpose, end quote. Okay. And apparently that's not rape, or at least the BIA said it wasn't in this very case a decade ago. So even though subsections A through C match the definition of rape used in the Immigration Aggravated Felony Provision, and even though Mr. Valdez pled to one of those subsections, it doesn't matter, because subsections A through D are means rather than elements of the offense, and under those circumstances, where a statute is indivisible, courts aren't allowed to look deeper into the actual conviction. And Oil actually had to concede most of this. And so Oil pivoted, arguing that actually subsection D does match the definition of rape used in the aggravated felony provision, meaning that the entire crime is an aggravated felony, and that the BIA was wrong to hold that it was not 10 years ago. And, despite the BIA's previous finding in this very case, dare I say concession, the Ninth Circuit held that California law appears to have developed over the past decade on the issue, and that now, quote, a victim's unawareness of the nature of a sexual act is the equivalent of the victim's lack of consent, end quote. In more layman's terms, the Ninth Circuit appears to believe that subsection D essentially covers consensual sexual intercourse obtained through fraud. And the Ninth Circuit is not sure whether the federal definition of rape, as used at INA Section 101A43A, includes consensual intercourse obtained through fraud. So, the Ninth Circuit sent it back to the BIA to answer this narrow question. Case remanded. Judge Graber would hold the BIA to their previous conclusion regarding subsection D, as indeed the Ninth Circuit held Mr. Valdez's counsel to his or her concession, and remand for the IJ and BIA to determine whether Mr. Valdez warrants cancellation of removal as a matter of discretion. 
Also, Judge Graber notes, quote, the absurdity of the categorical approach and its cousin, the modified categorical approach, end quote, and would like the Supreme Court to reconsider Mathis and everything that came before it. Assuming the Supreme Court does not do so, I've got one more thing on it. Note. It appears that the Ninth Circuit reached its conclusion notwithstanding the fact that Mr. Valdez's conviction documents appear to indicate the subsection of conviction. And it wasn't subsection D. That is, if the court applied the Mathis peak and saw the conviction documents listed the subsection, perhaps the Ninth Circuit would have held that, in fact, the crime is divisible, because the conviction documents list the subsection of conviction. Well, here, the Ninth Circuit didn't even conduct a Mathis peak because the peak is only a last resort when everything else, including jury instructions and state case law, don't answer the divisibility question. And here they did. So no peaking. And that is Valdez Amador v. Garland. Next is Fakhuri v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on March 11, 2022. Sticking with the categorical approach. Mr. Fakhuri is from Jordan, and he's a lawful permanent resident of the United States. In 2018, he pled guilty to attempting to launder money in violation of Tennessee Code Section 39-14-101 and 903. I'll call them like the Fifth Circuit did, the Section 101 and Section 903 offenses. If the conviction's an aggravated felony, he's removable. And both the IJ, BIA, and Fifth Circuit held that it is. Here's why. The courts held that the conviction matched the definition of an INA Section 101A43U attempt to commit a Section 101A43D aggravated felony. And that latter type of aggravated felony is an offense described in 18 U.S.C. Section 1956, an offense relating to money laundering where the amount of funds exceeds $10,000. Quite frankly, this type of aggravated felony, or an attempt to commit it, doesn't come up often. But naturally, the categorical approach applies, at least to the elements, not to the $10,000 amount. Tennessee Code Section 101 criminalizes attempting to commit a crime. Section 903 criminalizes five different types of money laundering, subsections A through E. Quote, each of those money laundering offenses is described in a separate subsection, and each of those subsections contains its own penalty provision, end quote. Under the law of pretty much every circuit, that indicates that the five subsections, A through E, are elements of the offense, rather than simply means of committing money laundering, thereby indicating that the statute is divisible. Then again, Mr. Fakuri's plea agreement didn't specify which subsection he pled to having attempted to violate. Quote, but the language of his indictment closely mirrored that of subsection B, end quote. And subsection B does match the generic definition of money laundering. It appears that at least one of the five ways of committing a section 903 offense does not match the generic definition of money laundering, even if subsection B does, so the matter comes down again to divisibility. If the statute is not divisible, it can't, as a whole, be a money laundering offense. But the Fifth Circuit held that it is divisible. Again, each subsection has a different penalty. Or at least subsection A, B, and C have one penalty, while subsections D and E each have a different punishment. Okay, even if that does show divisibility, doesn't that mean that subsections A, B, and C are indivisible as to themselves? 
i.e. doesn't that mean that subsections a, b, and c are means, while d and e are separate elements? Well, no. Because subsections a, b, and c have the same, quote, structure, end quote, as subsections d and e. That is to say, I guess they are listed separately. And the Fifth Circuit has already held that d and e are clearly elements. So that indicates to the Fifth Circuit that subsections a, b, and c, which are written in the same textual format, are also elements. And that indicates to the Fifth Circuit that the whole statute is divisible, meaning that the court can look to the conviction documents under the modified categorical approach and determine that Mr. Fakari did plead guilty to subsection B, which matches the federal definition of money laundering. Well, does it? That's the second argument that Mr. Fakari actually made. That even if it's divisible, subsection B does not match the federal definition of money laundering as used at INA section 11A43D which, remember, is actually defined by 18 U.S.C. section 1956. Lots of numbers and letters here. The Fifth Circuit rejected the argument and held that subsection B does match the federal definition, and it's a bit complicated. See, subsection 1956, the generic definition of money laundering, quote, prohibits only using such proceeds in a financial transaction, end quote. Subsection B in Tennessee does not. It doesn't have that financial transaction requirement. So that would indicate that subsection B does not match section 1956. But, said the Fifth Circuit, the financial transaction element is only in there so the federal government, rather than state governments, can criminalize money laundering. It's a jurisdictional element that essentially makes the crime one involving more than one state. And in Torres v. Lynch, the Supreme Court held that jurisdictional elements, in that case, an express connection to foreign commerce, aren't considered under the categorical approach. So, because the quote, financial transaction element is merely a roundabout way of requiring that the crime affect interstate commerce, end quote, it doesn't matter for categorical approach purposes. Put another way, subsection B matches the federal definition of money laundering. Plus, there was no realistic possibility that Tennessee would apply subsection B to conduct that didn't involve financial transactions, and the Fifth Circuit requires application of the realistic probability test. Interesting stuff, and a bit of an extension of Torres. Let's move on. And that is Fakuri v. Garland. That brings us to a Yahweh v. Garland, published by the 8th Circuit on March 11th, 2022. Not actually a petition for a review case. Instead, this one arose in district court, but I was tricked into clicking on it by the Attorney General Garland defendant, and I downloaded it. Might as well summarize it. This case is about USCIS denials of I-130 petitions. Mrs. Iyawe is a U.S. citizen and filed an I-130 petition on behalf of her husband, Mr. Iyawe. Naturally, she did this so he could adjust to LPR status and get a green card. And the two totally have a valid marriage. Indeed, they have three children together. So the petition should have been granted, and Mr. Yahweh should, absent some criminal conduct not mentioned in this decision that doesn't appear to be present anyway, get a green card and be permitted to live in the U.S. with his U.S. citizen wife and his three children. The problem is this. USCIS can't approve an I-130 petition, 
even with a valid marriage, where, quote, the non-citizen previously sought immigration benefits through a fraudulent marriage or attempted or conspired to do so, even if the current marriage is bona fide, or if the non-citizen was never prosecuted for the past conduct, end quote. That's INA Section 204C. And that's what USCIS concluded. That before this marriage, Mr. Iaiwe entered a marriage with a Miss Calpatrick, quote, for the purpose of evading immigration laws, end quote. To make such a finding, USCIS's decision must be based on, quote, substantial and probative evidence, end quote. Here's what went down. Mr. Iaiwe entered the U.S. as a visitor in 1985 and married Miss Kilpatrick a year later. She filed an I-130 petition for him a month later, and the immigration officer, at the time former INS, noted discrepancies in their interviews. And then Miss Kilpatrick signed a sworn affidavit saying that she was paid $300 and given both a bicycle and a stereo to marry Mr. Yahweh. No small gift in 1986. But of course, that's a huge problem. But petitioning spouses have been known to misstate facts to USCIS in such affidavits, particularly where there are marriage issues present at the time of the interview. And indeed, maybe that's what happened here, because years later, the couple remained married, and Ms. Kilpatrick filed two more I-130 petitions for Mr. Iaiwei. Either complete chutzpah, or it's a valid marriage. In the first, 1989, Ms. Kilpatrick explained that they were having marital problems at the time she signed that statement in 1986. Former INS denied the petition again. So in 1991, they tried again with a different INS office, and that office granted the I-130 petition. Don't recommend the strategy, and indeed, it might not be the most lawful thing to do, but it was 1991, and here we are. All the while, it appears that Mr. Iaiwei was in removal proceedings, and Ms. Kilpatrick submitted a notarized affidavit explaining in those proceedings how INS scared her the first time, and what she said in that first affidavit was not true. What a case. Glad I clicked on it. But Ms. Kilpatrick never appeared to testify in court, and in 1993, the couple finally divorced. Former INS revoked the approved I-130 petition. I don't know what the heck happened in those removal proceedings, which at the time, by the way, were deportation proceedings, but by 1998, Mr. Iaiwei was still here, and he got married again. There don't appear to be questions about this second marriage, but former INS issued a notice of intent to deny, or annoyed, bringing up all the issues about that first marriage to Miss Kilpatrick. Miss Kilpatrick submitted another affidavit. Didn't matter. Former INS denied the I-130 petition in 2003, and the appeal of that decision, which I believe goes to the BIA, was dismissed in 2005. Mr. Yahweh and his second wife divorced in 2005. Here comes 2012, and Mr. Iaiwei marries his current wife, Mrs. Iaiwei, and they totes have a valid marriage. Three kids, white picket fence, I-130 filed. But another noid from USCIS regarding the Reagan-era marriage to Miss Kilpatrick. And it's USCIS now because Mr. Iaiwei's entire saga has spanned the period from former INS to USCIS. USCIS denied the I-130 petition, the BIA dismissed the appeal, and the couple brought their action to district court through an Administrative Procedure Act lawsuit. A magistrate judge recommended that the district court grant summary judgment for the government, and the district court did. And here we are. 
To win, Mr. Yahweh and his wife need to show that the district court judge erred in concluding that USAIS's decision that he entered into a sham marriage with Miss Kilpatrick was, quote, arbitrary, capricious, and abuse of discretion, or otherwise not in accordance with law, end quote. Difficult standard layered upon difficult standard here. And the Yahweh's did not succeed. Quote, true. The Yahweh's point to some evidence favorable to their position, but much of the record cast doubt on the legitimacy of the marriage between Mr. Yahweh and Miss Kilpatrick. Of particular significance is Miss Kilpatrick's signed statement that she was paid to marry Mr. Yahweh, admitting that the marriage was a sham. This is direct evidence of fraud. End quote. So says the Eighth Circuit and the BIA's decision in Matter of Singh. It was not arbitrary and capricious for USCIS to give more weight to that first Miss Kilpatrick affidavit rather than her multiple subsequent ones, particularly as she failed multiple times to come in person and testify to the facts. But if she did... Anyway, the Iways therefore did not succeed. No idea what happened with those removal proceedings, which again were deportation proceedings, in the 1990s. Two things, as we probably won't have another one of these for a while. Not for nothing. Not only did the Eighth Circuit hold that it had jurisdiction to review this whole issue, but it did not find that the EIWA's failure to file objections to the magistrate judge's report and recommendation precluded review. Again, not for nothing. And finally note that there were four I-130 denials here. And even though that's the case, quote, as USCIS recognized, in making a fraudulent marriage determination, the district director should not give conclusive effect to determinations made in a prior proceeding, but rather should reach his own independent conclusion based on the evidence before him, end quote. It's something. And that is a Yahweh v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review, and send us a tweet, at ImReview, that's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.